Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. The savior of the world came out of the tribe of Judah. The savior of the world is Jewish, and many Christians and other people don't really know much about Judaism. What were the major sects of Judaism in the first century? Once the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, how did Judaism change? What are the current sects of Judaism, and how do they differ from one another? What were the main or what are the main Jewish views of the Messiah? What do Jewish scholars today think about the evidence for the resurrection? And by the way, if Jesus is the Messiah that the Old Testament promises, why didn't he bring in world peace? And what are some of the questions you can ask a Jewish person to, to get them to consider that Jesus is the true Messiah? There's probably nobody better on the planet to talk about this than my friend, Dr. Michael Brown. Dr. Brown, as you know, has been on the show several times, but he has his own program every day called Line of Fire. And you can go to AskDrBrown.org to learn more about that and more about him. He writes a column almost every day that you can find at Stream.org, Stream.org. He's written several amazing books. We've had many of those books uh, highlighted here on the show. And uh, he is just an amazing man who came out of Judaism and is a Messianic Jew today. He has his PhD in Semitic languages from New York University. So it's always a pleasure to have Mike on. Mike, how are you? Doing great, Frank. It's always great to be on with you. Now, let's talk Judaism 101. Let's kind of do a, uh, a rapid fire thing here. I've got like almost 20 questions I want to ask you, Mike, and I know our audience is going to want to hear uh, the answers to many of these questions. So let's just jump right in. Let's start right in the first century, Jesus's time. We see all these major sects of Judaism. We have Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Zealots, maybe some others who generally, and it, it, you know, in a kind of a summary way, what, who were these different sects? What did they believe? Right. They, they had certain things in common, and then there was great diversity among them. So if Christians think today of, of Roman Catholics and Greek Orthodox and Protestant Evangelical and other groups, they realize, OK, there, there are certain things that you would say are in common, but then a lot of diversity between them. So uh, the Pharisees would claim that when God gave Moses the law on Mount Sinai, that God also gave him the oral law. So he gave him the written law and the oral law, which is the interpretation and expansion of the written law. And in their mind, without those traditions, you cannot understand scripture. In their mind, they go all the way back to the time of Moses. But from what they we can tell, they probably grew as a movement maybe 150 years or so before the time of Jesus, perhaps out of the time of the Maccabees and the revolts like that. Again, they would say they go all the way back. But for the Pharisees, this was the key, that they had traditions in their mind that went back to Moses. And, and they also were not temple-based. They developed the idea of the synagogue. And, and this goes back a few hundred years before the time of Jesus, with the idea that every Jew should live at the purity level, say that a priest would live. And, and it, it called on the Jewish community as a whole to exist in this particular way, 
we know in the New Testament that Jesus has a lot of conflicts with them. Is that because he was close to that sect himself as Paul was? So it's more of an inner family struggle or that he had tremendous conflict with them. Either way, at that time, they did speak of the traditions of the fathers. But over time, that became developed as the oral law going back to Moses. And the Pharisees then over a period of time when the temple was destroyed, they were equipped to continue on pretty easily because they were synagogue based. They were based in different communities. And then this is ultimately what developed into what we know as rabbinic or traditional Judaism today. As as for the Sadducees, again, it's hard to trace the origins of these various groups, but we know that there are disputes that reflect their own particular views uh, 100 plus years before the time of Jesus. We have documents from the Dead Sea Scrolls that seem to reflect some of these battles. They were the opposite in their views. They simply believed in the written law. They believed in the five books of Moses as ultimate authority. So the other writings did not have the same level of inspiration. They didn't believe in the spiritual realm the same way, in the afterlife the same way. And they pretty much were uh, destroyed as a group with the, with the destruction of the temple. They were more aristocratic. They had uh, the high priesthood and, and much of the Sanhedrin was, was Sadducean. And because they were temple-based with the destruction of the temple, it was pretty much the end of them. Some groups claim that they can be traced back to them today, but that is a, a very much fringe within Judaism. As for the Essenes, again, can't trace their origins initially, but we know that Josephus and Philo speak about these these three groups primarily, about the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. They may have been entirely male. There's some evidence that there are other groups that were not, but we know, for example, Qumran, uh, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which most take to be an Essene community, that seemed to be celibate males from what we can tell. They had basically withdrawn because of the impurity of, of the Judaism of the people, that that was their perception of the temple. They had withdrawn more into more monastic life. And we know much of their teaching through Dead Sea Scrolls. And interestingly, some of the concepts there, the the, the battle between the sons of light and the sons of darkness or the, the kingdom of God versus kingdom of Satan. You have more similar concepts there than you do have in other parts of Judaism. Uh, as for the zealots, they were more of a politically based group. So, so their whole thing was patriotism and the overthrow of Rome. They would have been the ones that were involved in the, the revolts against Rome uh, the, the war in 66 to 70 AD that resulted in the destruction of the temple and then the subsequent revolt under Bar Kokhba from 132 to 135 that resulted in scattering of Jewish people out of Jerusalem. So I know we're going to have a rapid fire on the rest, but no, it's great. This is a little bit, a little bit longer answer here. No, that's great. No, and I've always heard this that the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, the Sadducees did not. That's th that's why they were sad, you see. That's an easy way to remember that. Anyway, uh, but why do you think the Pharisees did believe in the re uh, the bodily resurrection and the Sadducees didn't? I mean, did the Sadducees think something like uh Daniel 12 did they interpret it a different way? Why why was there a difference there, do you know? Ah, uh, so the the major verse, you have a few verses in the Old Testament that explicitly mm -hmm. speak of resurrection. The most decisive being Daniel 12 too. But mm -hmm. if your primary canon is the Torah 
and you do mm. not see the rest of the books as carrying the same level of inspiration or the same weight or look at them as scripture, then you're, you're not looking at that. So within the Torah, can you make a, a definitive case for resurrection? That's why Jesus quotes from the Torah in rebutting them and saying, when God says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when he tells that to Moses, that means he's the God of the living, not of the dead. So that would have been a brilliant insight from the Lord to rebut them. But to quote from Daniel or something else would not have had meaning for them. Okay, so they didn't take Daniel as being authoritative like they took the Torah, the first five books. Exactly. So within Judaism, the five books of Moses are considered to be the highest level so that you have uh, the concept that God dictated. An ultra-Orthodox Jew would believe that God dictated the five books of Moses to Moses, but they would look at the entire Old Testament, the entire Hebrew Bible, as authoritative as God's words. The Pharisees, did, uh, the Sadducees, excuse me, did not. So I know we, we just got about 40 seconds before the break here, Mike, but so let's say you're living in exile and you're with Daniel. Are they considering, say, the writings of, of Isaiah and say the other prophets, are they authoritative to say someone like Daniel in the, in, you know, in the 500s? BC oh, yeah, ab or absolutely. Okay. Uh, totally authoritative. We know that Daniel quotes from Jeremiah uh, mm -hmm. in the ninth chapter of Daniel. He's looking at Jer the book of Jeremiah as authoritative. Absolutely. Whatever scriptures they had access to that we have today, uh, from what we can tell, those were being considered authoritative in, in their day. That's the great Dr. Michael Brown. We're talking about Judaism. Judaism 101. We're going from 10,000 feet to look down at Judaism and seeing what it's all about. And there's no better person than Dr. Michael Brown to do it. His website is AskDrBrown.org. I'm Frank Turek. The show is I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And we're going to be back in just a couple of minutes, so don't go anywhere. Ladies and gentlemen, can you help me with something? Can you help me get this podcast before more people? Not only tell your friends about it, but go up to iTunes and put a five-star review on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. If you do that, it will help us move the podcast up the charts so more people will hear it. Thank you so much for partnering with me on this. If you're low on the FM dial looking for National Public Radio, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. My guest is Dr. Michael Brown. AskDrBrown.org is one of his websites. You can go there and you can ask him. Uh, <laughs> you can get answers to a lot of questions on that website. Let me just put it that way. And uh, Dr. Brown is an expert in Judaism. In fact, he's written a couple of commentaries. I know, Mike, you've written a commentary on Jeremiah and also Job. Isn't that correct? Uh, yes. And uh, hopefully one on Isaiah is next. And then, of course, I, I wrote the five volume series answering Jewish objections to Jesus. And then another book, 60 questions Christians ask about Jewish beliefs and practices. And then the real kosher Jesus. And then our hands are stained with blood about anti-Semitism in church history. So yeah, it's it's been it's been a subject of great focus. Obviously, when I came to faith, that was the very first thing. Well, we're Jews. We don't believe this. So mm -hmm. I've been in dialogue and debate with the rabbinic community for the last 48 years. 
Wow. Well, it is a, a great pleasure to have you on to talk about Judaism 101, because we all need to be better educated on the faith from which Christianity came. Let me ask you this. I, I know you mentioned that the Pharisees had started synagogues prior to, obviously, 70 AD. Jesus visited several of them. But once the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, how did Judaism change? Right. Well, what happened was you no longer had the one place you could go to. You no longer had the high priest functioning. You no longer had the sacrificial system and all of that. So now things had to be lived out more on a daily level among the people where they were. So on the one hand, the laws and, and being Torah-based, law-based, that continued. In other words, that, that you will be sanctified by keeping the commandments, that you will bring the, the holy into the mundane world around you by living by God's commandments day and night. But now more and more rituals develop to take the place. You're not at the temple. You have sacrifices being offered different times of the day. Well, instead of that, you'll pray. And then Daniel was looked at as a model for that, praying three times daily. In fact, to a rabbinic Jew, he was praying three times daily because he already had the oral traditions they had. But obviously the reverse is true. So a traditional Jew, now traditions develop where, where you pray, uh, where your words uh, would take the place of of uh, sacrifices, where your repentance, which was always considered to be of primary importance, that that would take the place of sacrifice. And that every Jew now would be expected to live at a certain level of devotion. So it became, in that sense, more communal in the different cities uh, where Jews were scattered around the world. Obviously, instead of going to Jerusalem, you'd have a tremendous emphasis on keeping the feasts. But more and more rituals were developed to, to fill things out. Uh, the fundamental beliefs would have been the same. But whereas there was once a tremendous emphasis on temple blood sacrifice, now there would be a greater emphasis, say, on, on communal prayer in different cities and locations. So now I know I, there are even some Christians who are trying to say we ought to obey all the laws of the Old Testament. I always ask them, but how can we do that if the temple does not exist? I mean, if you're going to take the letter of the law of the Old Testament, you have to go to temple, don't you? Uh, yeah, well, you would, you would say that a tremendous amount of what you're required to do, you cannot do without a standing temple, without a functioning priesthood, and without Jewish sovereignty. You simply can't carry out many of the commandments. So a traditional Jew looks at this as a loss, that this is, this is a shame that we can't do these things. But then they look at other biblical texts like Hosea 14. They would see a mandate for offering prayer instead of animal sacrifices. Some of the text says, but they would find that. They would find throughout the prophets the tremendous emphasis on repentance and, and seek to live that out. But yes, from the Christian perspective, to, to not recognize that God is doing something radically new in Jesus, that the moral requirements of the law are now lived out uh, with the help of the Spirit in us today. For a Christian today to say we're supposed to keep the law of Moses or all Christians are required to, to keep the Sinai covenant is a decided step backwards. And it's certainly contrary to what the new Testament teaches. Yeah. It teaches in Hebrews uh, eight thirteen, I think it is that uh, the old covenant is obsolete. And yet we have people today who are claiming to be Christians who are saying we have to obey all the old Testament laws. And I always ask them, how could you, you, it's impossible. Even if you had the, the moral capacity to do so, there's no temple. There's no way of even doing that. Um, 
Uh, let me ask you also, Dr. Brown, uh, the current sex of Judaism. So let's fast forward to the, the present now. We, we, we talked about what they were like in the first century. What are the different denominations or sects of Judaism, the major ones today? Right. So the three major ones are Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform. The Orthodox would, would look to the Pharisees and say, we are continuing with the traditions that have been passed on from generation to generation. And those would be the most religious, the most observant. Uh, and then you have the ultra-Orthodox. Those would be the ones that, that you would see in, in the men in the black coats with the long beards and things like that. They would they would be the closest to what has been going on for centuries now, and and they would be the most devoted to studying the further traditions, Talmud and things like that. The the reform broke away a little over two hundred years ago as Jews were able to come out of the ghetto situation in which they lived in Europe, and they became more part of the larger community. You could say as there was more worldliness and, and things like that, they wanted to be much more like the rest of the world. And they felt that some of the emphasis on being the chosen people or praying for the rebuilding of a physical temple and the restoration of animal sacrifices, that that, that was somewhat primitive. So they cast off a lot of the traditions and said, we want to emphasize the, the prophetic side of things, the God's heart for the poor and the needy and things like that. And they, they threw out many of the traditions and that in America is the largest single group today. Uh, this is liberal Judaism. Uh, your average Reformed Jew does not go to synagogue every week. Your average Reformed Jew does not keep the dietary laws, does not believe in the inspiration of Scripture the way we would. They would be somewhat equivalent to maybe like a liberal Presbyterian that doesn't mm -hmm. even believe in the resurrection of Jesus and isn't sure that the Bible is God's word. Uh, that would be where they are. The conservative movement was launched a little over 100 years ago in response to reform. They agreed with reform Jews that we could not look at scripture the way we used to, that that modern critical scholarship of, of the religious documents indicated that we had to change some of our views, but it wanted to conserve the traditions. So it was kind of in the middle initially between Orthodox and Reform. It's the second biggest group in America today. But over the years, it's gotten much closer to Reform, more liberal. Uh, so, for example, Reform was the first to ordain female rabbis. Then or Reform was the first to ordain homosexual rabbis. And then conservative is kind of following in its heels. So that's the Judaism of most Americans. It is liberal. It is, it is not really devout. It is. It was what I was raised in, which meant that I went to synagogue on the high holy days, that I learned enough Hebrew to be bar mitzvah, but I didn't even know what the words meant that I was reading. That's what I was raised in. So those are more modern innovations. If you want to trace things in a way that would go more in terms of the spirit of the Pharisees and things like that, that would be rabbinic Judaism, traditional Judaism, Orthodox Judaism. And then in its most right wing uh, groups. You have the Hasidic Jews, which are one of the larger growing groups in Israel. Uh, Ultra-Orthodox make up about 15 percent of the population. So how do they vote if they're here in America politically? Where are they? Because I, I realize it seems anyway that when you look at exit polls, most people identify as Jewish would vote Democrat. 
Is the reason for that because they're basically liberal when it comes to their views of God or what? Why is that? Yeah, there are two major reasons. So the very orthodox in recent elections have been leaning Republican much, much more. Mm -hmm. uh, so closer to evangelicals in that regard. But the Democrats, uh, uh, the liberal Jews overwhelmingly wrote, vote Democrat, uh, almost almost as high as African-Americans. Very, very close, maybe 80-something uh, percent. So there are a few reasons. One is they are very liberal. The way they read the Bible, if they read it, is very much the way, like I said, a liberal Presbyterian or a liberal Catholic would, would read it. So in their mind, they're taking the cause, the prophetic cause of justice, and they're, they're standing up for the, for the immigrants, and they're standing up for the, the right of a woman to abort, and, and they're standing up for equal rights for gays, and they think that that's the, that's the right position. Uh, and it's because they're not looking at scripture as authoritative in the way that we would. They also have a fear of, of any type of fundamentalism. Uh, they look at church history. They see the way they've been persecuted by, mm. in their mind, religious Christians over the centuries. And they have this fear of a fundamentalism. So they, they see that much more on the Republican side. The, uh, the emphasis on making America a Christian country makes the Jew think, well, where do I fit in that scheme? So that's another reason for it uh, over the years. Now, I saw something recently, Mike. Uh, it was up at MetLife Stadium where the New York Giants play football. There was a group of Jewish folks that got together. They filled the stadium and they were celebrating the fact that they had completed a text that wasn't the Old Testament. What was it and, and why is this text authoritative to them? Yeah, it's called Siyum HaShas, which is the completion of the Shas, which stands for the six orders, the six orders of the Mishnah and then the Talmud. Uh, the Talmud consists of 2,711 pages of incredibly dense and difficult text, and then many, many thousands, many thousands of additional commentaries on the text. And if you can study one page a day, which is a breakneck pace, it's almost impossible. <laughs> if, if, if you, when you're studying it at the yeshiva level, so at, at the, the, the uh, or in the rabbinical, uh, advanced levels where you're 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 in studying 10 12 14 16 hours a day you can be going through uh one page for days going mm. digging in and digging in or or for months just go through a few pages so it takes seven and a half years if you do this one page a day or it's called a daf that's a talmudic page so this was the completion of it, a cycle that has been going on uh, somewhere in the early 1900s. Someone came up with this. So hundreds of thousands of Jews around the world participated in this, uh, in this process. And that's what they were celebrating, 90, 100,000 Jews at MetLife. So what is the Talmud? Uh, the Talmud uh, is compiled around 5600 A.D., over a period of centuries, it is an ongoing legal discussion about various texts. The Mishnah is first composed about 220 uh, AD, and this is fundamental compilation of laws, which we'll expand on on the other side of the break. We're talking to the great Dr. Michael Brown. You can see he's the right guy to talk to when it comes to Judaism 101. He can go a lot deeper than 101. This is sounding like 401 now, which is great. We need this. Don't go anywhere except to Dr. Brown's website, askdrbrown.org. We're back in just two minutes. I'm Frank Turk.
If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Join our online community to have great conversations, grow in your knowledge of God, and become a better defender of the Christian faith. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where we have hundreds of videos and over 100,000 subscribers that are part of our online family. Find us by searching for Frank Turek or cross-examine in the search bar. You can find many more resources like articles, online courses, free downloadable materials, event calendars, and more at crossexamined.org. So what, again, is the difference between the Talmud and the Mishnah, and why do people today think they are authoritative texts? We're going to get right back to Dr. Michael Brown in just a minute. Before we do, I want to mention I'm going to be this Sunday at Mosaic Church in Highland, Illinois, in the morning, and then at night we're going to do more. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist in Q&A. The next night, uh, Monday night, in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, I'll Indiana. I'll be at Central Ministries. Then the following night in Fort Wayne, that'll be Tuesday, I'll be at Purdue University, Purdue Fort Wayne. And then the next night, Wednesday night, in Columbus, Ohio, at the great Ohio State University with my friend Eric Chabot, who's the Ratio Christie director there. So you're going to want to check all that out. If you're anywhere in the area, I'd love to see you near St. Louis. That's where Highland, Illinois is, or in Fort Wayne for those two events, Monday night and Tuesday night. And then the next night in Columbus, Columbus, Ohio, Lord willing, with Ohio State University. Go to crossexamine.org. That's crossexamine with a D on the end of it.org. Hit events, and you'll see those there. Let me go back to my friend, Dr. Michael Brown. Mike, just before the break, you were talking about authoritative texts that Jewish people today uh, follow, other than the the what we would call the Old Testament. They're the Talmud and the Mishnah. Can you uh, pick it up right there and tell us the difference between those two again? Yes, sir. So you go back to the idea in Pharisaical Judaism, which becomes rabbinical Judaism, then traditional Judaism, that God gave Moses a written law and an oral law. And according to the concept, the oral law was passed on orally from generation to generation to generation to generation. And we see this concept reflected in the New Testament with, quote, the traditions of the fathers, which Jesus often has issues or or the traditions of the elders. So by 200 years after the time of Jesus, as these traditions have now certainly been developing for at least a few centuries under the Pharisees and now their successors, the rabbinic Jews. So you had to write the the traditions down. There was just too much material. If you read the Mishnah, you see very little reference to scripture. It's just, Rabbi, this says this, Rabbi, this says this, and then here's the discussion, and then we do this, we do this. It's just presupposing that all of this exists in their various categories, say for uh, you know, laws concerning damages, or laws concerning marriage and divorce, or laws concerning agriculture, and things like that. So these are now put in writing in these six different orders of what is called the Mishnah, which is written in Hebrew and composed about 220 AD. What happens next in the subsequent centuries is there's discussion about these laws and traditions that's going on. Different rabbinic communities, you have them in Babylon, you have them in in the land of Israel, which is now called Palestine, and you have debates. And now this one reads it, no, well, we have a tradition that says this. Well, how does that tie in with scripture? So now this discussion has to tie things back in with the Bible. Well, you know, I heard an interesting story that explains this. Well, no. Well, actually, I heard a story with this other rabbi. And now you can tie in discussions from Frank Turek 
in the 21st century, talking to Charles Spurgeon in the 1800s, talking to Augustine. It's just it's all uh, it can, but it's it's all tied in. It's weaved together in a very complex legal form. And this full document of the Mishnah plus this discussion is called the Talmud. This additional discussion is called the Gemara. So it is the Mishnah plus the Gemara, which equals the Talmud. It is massively difficult. It's primarily composed in a very concise Aramaic and a very unusual dialect that developed. And you ultimately have two Talmuds. The shorter one, which is not as widely studied, called the Jerusalem Talmud, which was composed about 400, between four and 500. And then the Babylonian Talmud, which is the larger one, which is studied with such devotion to this day. And that is really the center of Judaism. So even though rabbinic Judaism says the Bible is the word of God, the Bible is the highest authority, and everything flows out of the five books of Moses, the Torah, for a traditional Jew, Talmud is front and center. This is what is going to be mastered and studied for life. And, and then out of that, because the Talmud does not come to a lot of clear conclusions on things, out of that developed the subsequent law codes. So Maimonides law code in the 12th century or a subsequent law code of a Rabbi Yosef Karo in the 16th century. This is how the tradition continues to develop. And then after that, uh, further questions come up to this day. Well, how does this apply? But what about this? What about with this new technology? And then these things are written down. So there is what is called Yam HaTalmud, the sea of the Talmud, because the traditions continue to develop in an ongoing way. And, and if you just think of, say, reading the Bible, you put a Bible in a room and, and that's what Christians are dealing with, especially uh, Protestants, evangelicals. That's what they're dealing with. Well, now fill that room with thousands of other texts. That's what a traditional Jew is dealing with. And as one historian, James Parks, put it that Catholicism is no more the religion of the New Testament than Judaism is the religion of the Old Testament. That's important to remember. A Catholic would say that we have the authoritative traditions that have been passed on and developed through the church. Judaism says we have the authoritative traditions that have been passed on and developed by the rabbis. Now, why, Dr. Brown, we listen to Dr. Michael Brown. My name's Frank Turek, and he, we're just doing a kind of an overview of Judaism today. Uh, why do they think, or, or from what Old Testament text would would this originate, Dr. Brown, that they would actually think that there are oral traditions that could continually add to, in an authoritative way, the life of a Jewish believer? So on the one hand, there's the negative argument that you need additional texts. In other words, there's a death penalty for observing the Sabbath if you work on the Sabbath, but nowhere is work defined. So their mm. understanding would be, well, God gave that to Moses and that was passed on. There are other things that you're told to do, you know, build a, a booth, you know, for tabernacles. Well, what are the dimensions of the booth and what materials do you use? It? So, you know, things like that, some major, some minor. They would say many laws we don't have the explanations of how to keep. So there must have been additional traditions. But then they would point to uh, Deuteronomy, the 17th chapter. And there it would say that you go to the Levitical priest or to the judge uh, when you have a dispute. And whatever they tell you, that's what you do. You don't turn from the right or to the left. And whoever won't listen to them, 
uh, will be severely punished. So that is, in their mind, the authority to make these decisions, that you're going to have these ongoing questions and that you go to the community leaders and the community leaders tell you what to do. And whatever they say, that's what you have to do because they are the appointed judges. So if you ask an American today, well, you know, what you, you live based on the Constitution. Well, you live based on the Constitution and thousands of laws. You know, if you go to plant mm-hmm. a tree in your yard, no, you may not be able to do that based on county law. You have endless decisions and you have a Supreme Court. So that's the way Judaism functions as a religion, because it is a law based religion. They look at passages like Deuteronomy chapter 30, that it's near you, it's in your heart and in your mouth that you should do it. So in your mouth, that's the oral law that's been passed on through the generations. So those are some of the arguments that are used, but a major one is, well, without these traditions, we don't know how to live out the law. So they must've been there from the start. But it seems like with all those traditions, it would be impossible to even know the law, much less live it. So how do traditional views or traditional Jews view the law? Is it a burden or a blessing to them? Uh, To them, it's a wonderful blessing. Now, certainly you would have a traditional Jew that is burdened and and is burnt out by religion. Of course, it's going to happen. But in their mind, God privileged the Jewish people by giving them the gift of the Torah, that they were singled out for special divine Mm -hmm. treatment and love through this gift. That's why a traditional Jew, when he gets up in the morning, the first thing he, he does is he thanks God that he wasn't born a woman, a Gentile or a slave. It's not because he considers himself superior. But a slave is under someone else's orders. They don't have the power to keep the whole law. A Gentile is not required to. And a woman is exempt from certain laws because of life cycle and things that she wouldn't be able to to do at certain times. So only a male Jew, a free male Jew, is required to keep all the law, which is considered to be the ultimate blessing. Read Psalm 19 or Psalm Mm -hmm. 119, the continual praise for God's Torah. That's how a traditional Jew sees it. Now, what are their views today of the Messiah? Now, they're still waiting, obviously, but they're obviously like yourself. You're a you're a messianic Jewish believer. But what are the main views of of Jews today who are not messianic Jews when it comes to the Messiah? All right. If you are a liberal Jew, a reformed Jew, you don't believe in a personal Messiah. You basically believe in a messianic era through human self-improvement. Again, just a a liberal kind of view. And you you don't really believe in an afterlife either. So this is very much separated from traditional Jews of the Messiah, the traditional views. Uh, Traditional Jews pray daily with expectation for the coming of the Messiah. They do not believe he'll come in the clouds of heaven. They believe he could be alive among us today. Uh, They believe that he will be a human being, but a supernaturally gifted human being. So they don't believe that he will be divine. They will believe that he himself will be a religious Jew, that he will be a, a teacher that brings all the Jewish people into obedience to God's commands, that he will fight the wars of the Lord that he will regather the exiles, that he will rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And, and if you see a religious Jew of great influence and he begins to do some of these things, so he's bringing more and more Jews back into tradition, then you wonder, could, could he be the Messiah? Then he, when he be, does the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, then you say, certainly he is the Messiah. And then the goal of the Messiah would be to bring the whole world into the worship of of the God 
of Israel so that Isaiah 2 would be fulfilled, that all the nations would come streaming to Jerusalem to learn uh, the teaching of the Lord, and that the whole world would be God-fearing, and that would be the time of, of peace and things like that. So many of the things that Christians expect Jesus to do with his second coming in terms mm. of uh, destroying the wicked, in terms of, of regathering the exiles, or in terms of establishing God's kingdom on the earth, that's, that's a, a similar expectation, except it'd be very much Israel-Jewish-centered and Torah-centered. So now there will be a rebuilt temple. Now the sacrificial system will be restored. There are some traditional Jews who are trying now to rebuild the temple, saying that this is helping hasten the redemption. But the normal traditional view is that the Messiah has to come and, and do this. There's also a Jewish view that in every generation, there's a potential Messiah. And that if the Jewish people are worthy, he will be revealed. So that's why he could potentially come at any moment because he could be here already. And if the generation is worthy of him, then he'll be revealed as Messiah. There's even a concept that would involve some type of reincarnation where the, the Messiah was born when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So the soul of the Messiah has been present in a different Jew in every generation. That would be more of a mystical belief, but that's held mm. to by many Jews today. What do Jews believe about the resurrection, the evidence for the resurrection today? Why didn't the Messiah bring in world peace? And what are some questions you can ask a Jewish person to get them to consider Jesus as the Messiah? There are questions we're going to get to with Dr. Michael Brown, my guest today. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turk. Our website, crossexamined.org. And we're back in just two minutes. See you then. Ladies and gentlemen. I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist is a listener-supported radio program and podcast. If you like what we do, would you please consider going to crossexamined.org and giving us a tax-deductible donation. 100% of your donations will go to ministry, 0% to buildings. Thanks so much. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. My guest today, Dr. Michael Brown. As you can see, he knows Judaism very well. He came out of Judaism as a young man and uh, has studied it and has written on it and is the go-to guy in my mind for questions that we, that we have today on Judaism. And uh, go to his website, AskDrBrown.org. Uh, Mike, I know before the break, you were talking a little bit about uh, the volumes that you've written. I have them on my shelf and refer to them quite frequently with regard to the objections that Jewish folks have to saying that Jesus is the Messiah. One of the objections is if Jesus is the Messiah, why don't we have world peace? What would you say to that? Yeah, I would say that the work of the Messiah, according to the Hebrew Bible, is in two phases. And the first phase, he had to come and die and rise from the dead before the second temple was destroyed. And then the message will go throughout the entire world, rejected initially by the people of Israel, but then going to the Gentile world. And ultimately, when Israel does recognize him as the Messiah, he will return and establish peace on earth. So I would argue that based on the Hebrew Bible, there are two phases to his work. Judaism is looking for the second phase without the first phase, but without the first phase, there can be no second phase. Mm. Now, Jews obviously are monotheists, but there is a bit of a plurality in the Old Testament in certain areas. Uh, for example, in I think it's Judges 6, you kind of have two Yahwehs in Judges 6. And of course, uh, it appears that Jesus appears in a pre-incarnate state 
particularly like say in Isaiah six and maybe some other areas, maybe with Joshua speak to that a little bit, Mike, they're believers in monotheism, but do they recognize plurality in the Godhead? Uh, they would not define it as plurality uh, to them uh, to say that there are two powers or that there, there are different uh, dimensions uh, that could be defined as persons in any way within the Godhead would, would be idolatrous for, for them. It is a, as, especially as Judaism has developed a very strict monotheism on the one hand that says one God, one God only. And we'll explain these other passages more with manifestations of angels and things like that. However, uh, within Judaism, in mystical Judaism, you have the, the spherot. These are various emanations of God, uh, 10 different aspects of, of his person that do bring out a certain plurality. And you could argue that Second Temple Judaism in the time of Jesus recognized more of this, had more exalted angelology, had a, an angel mitatron who was so high and lofty that, that he could represent Yahweh and things like that. Uh, or that there was even a, a concept of the Messiah where he was more divine. But this would be one of the biggest issues that Judaism has with Christianity, the idea of a trinity, or God's triunity, or God becoming a man, or a man becoming God, uh, to a traditional Jew, that would be an idolatrous belief. So in my volumes, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, I really argue for God's complex unity. In fact, if folks go to my website, sdrbrown.org, and sign up to get my emails, they'll get a free ebook, Seven Secrets of the Real Messiah. And one of these seven secrets I deal with God being complex and his unity is as part of this. How can the invisible God be seen? So if they go to askdrbrown.org and just sign up for our emails, then they'll get that mini book, which will kind of introduce them to some of these other subjects. When you say complex, I know there's a lot of listeners going, well, I thought God was simple. He doesn't have parts. So how in a sense is God nature simple, but yet he still has a plurality to it in with regard to the Trinity. Have you done much writing or thinking about that topic? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's a major part of volume two of answering Jewish objections to Jesus. I get into it in real kosher Jesus from which we took those seven secrets of the real Messiah for the for the ebook. I, I speak of God as complex in his unity as a way to try to reach Jewish people because if you say plural or plurality or triunity or anything like that, then to them, you're not saying monotheism. So how can God be visible and invisible? How can God be transcendent and imminent? Uh, how, how can God look? We have the New Testament telling us no one has seen God, right? John mm -hmm. 1, 1 Timothy 6, and yet God is seen. So that's why I say he's complex in his unity. So saying he's simple is approaching, approaching it from one aspect of Christian theology. Saying he's complex in his unity is my way of trying to explain how he is three and yet one. How there mm -hmm. is no separation within the Godhead, yet there is distinction of persons within the Godhead. To me, that is complex and yet ultimately one. Yeah, we believe God's nature is simple, yet it, it mani his nature manifests itself uh, in uh, in ways that that appear to be 
complex as you would say. Like, for example, I always think of a, a light going through a prism. You see light coming through the prism on one end, and it comes out in all different colors on the other. We're kind of on that side of the prism where all the different colors are coming out. So we see his attributes. We see his love, his justice, his knowledge, his, his uh, all, all of the attributes we can see separately, but it's still one being on the other side. That may be one way of looking at it. But let me go back to some of these questions I have on Judaism, if we can, Mike, and that is what do Jewish scholars think about the evidence for the resurrection? Do they deal with it at all? Your average Jewish scholar is not thinking about it uh, any okay. more than your average Christian scholar is thinking about the life of Buddha or the claims right. of Muhammad. Uh, those who engage in the discussion, uh, the, the most radical of them is, is the Orthodox Jewish scholar Pinchas Lapid. Uh, deceased uh, some years back. He wrote a book on the resurrection of Jesus, claiming that it really happened, uh, but mm. that did not mandate Jews believing in him as the Messiah. That's really? the most extreme view. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, other, otherwise, uh, there'd be questions about what we even know about Jesus, uh, how much ancient writings even tell us. Uh, they, they would look in, in a, a more skeptical way of, of aspects of his historicity, uh, for a religious Jew, there'd be no possibility of his resurrection. Uh, they, they would look in Matthew's gospel where it's, it says, you know, the Jews had this account, you know, the body being stolen. And they'd say, look, there are all different explanations. There is you Schoenfeld's argument, the swoon theory that Jesus didn't really die, that he appeared that he died. He just swooned. And then when he came back, he just revived. It wasn't a resurrection. Uh, but there is there's one uh, Jewish now who's written a massive book trying to debunk every argument about the resurrection. Dr. Gary Habermas, probably our number one authority on this, is, has interacted mm -hmm. some of this. It looks like it's going to be a multiple series on it. But it, it would try systematically to deny that there's any concrete evidence. And by the way, I have a book coming out uh, beginning of March called Resurrection, investigating mm -hmm. a rabbi from Brooklyn, a preacher from Galilee, an event that, that changed the world. And in the book, I talk about this ultra-Orthodox rabbi in Brooklyn, many of his followers thought was the Messiah. When he died, they thought he would rise. Of course, he didn't. They, they say he is the Messiah. He's with us spiritually. So I contrast that with the New Testament mentality of disappointment, you know, the criterion of embarrassment that you know so right. well. Where, sure. You know, it's like, you know, there looks like a bunch of failures. This is over. <laughs> he died. And, and when he mm -hmm. rises, they're shocked. So if we can show that those accounts are real, it really does give credence to the, the resurrection accounts. Especially they were written by Jewish believers in Yahweh. So why would they invent it? Did, did, the, did any scholars deal with that, that question? These are Jewish writings in the first century. Yeah, they, they would. Uh, I mean, they come in from different angles that there's belief in the resurrection that was present at that point. Uh, and, and they applied it here. Uh, that some even claim that there are some Jewish traditions that the Messiah would die and resurrect. But that's very disputed based on just a couple of, of uh, obscure texts. Hmm. But they they wouldn't deny that Matthew was a Jewish believer in Yahweh and he's oh, writing no, no. a text. They, no, they fully understand. That, look, there is a Jewish annotated New Testament uh, that came out uh, a few years back. Amy Jill Levine and, and other Jewish scholars put it together where they they're doing Jewish commentary on it, uh, fully recognizing that this was initially a Jewish sect. Fully recognizing hmm. that in its origin, this was this was another Jewish sect that was part of the Jewish community in the first century and must be read and understood as that. Some say that Paul is one of our best uh, witnesses for first century Jewish belief. 
uh, because mm-hmm. of, of the sources there. Yeah, so there's more and more recognition of the importance of incorporating the New Testament in the study of early Judaism. Well, we just got a couple minutes left, uh, Mike, and I just want to ask you some questions that our listeners could ask their Jewish friends to at least get them to consider Jesus as the Messiah. Is there anything they can ask them? Yeah, first, recognize that your average Jewish friend is not religious, doesn't know the Bible well, may not even believe in God. So you may want to start with them like you do with everyone else, just about God and you believe in God and things like that, then you mm-hmm. want them to, you want to deal with moral issues. You know, what do you think of the 10 commandments and things like that? Maybe that'll carry a little bit more weight, even for a non-religious Jew. So you want to show them their moral need. Do you think that, you know, the, the law is, is from God or do you believe in some of the commandments to so try to show them that, but then explain to them the need for redemption, uh, emphasize no temple things. So once you've asked those kind of questions, uh, you could say, you know, have you ever looked at the Messianic prophecies? Most of them, what prophecies? What are you talking about? But prophecies are very intriguing to people. You mean this was really laid out in advance? And if mm. you could get them to read Isaiah 53, whatever Bible they have access to, right. you know, just Jewish translation, read this. Who does this <laughs> sound like? Uh-huh. Why it is extraordinary how I no 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 I want I don't want to read from the New Testament no no this is, that's the Old Testament you're not reading from the New Testament well somebody right. changed it no no you get your own Bible look at that and then try to open them up what you see that it says we would reject him you see it says that he died in our place so just like the animal sacrifice took our place that he died in our place I so you want to first get them God conscious sin conscious, and then from there, save your redeemer conscience. And then from there, if you can say, hey, why don't you, you know, why don't you read Matthew? Or, you know, it's just written by a, by a Jew about the Jewish Messiah. Or, did, you know, did you know Paul was a Jew? Or, you know, Jesus' actual name was Yeshua and his mother's name was Miriam. Were you aware of these things? Mm. And try to open their eyes up so that they realize, okay, I'm not, because you a, a Jew, even a non-religious Jews, most still feel it's important to be Jewish. Mm. And, and, and we do have certain traditions and our ancestors died rather than deny these things. So preserving Judaism for many Jews is important. Say, hey, you're not coming outside of being a Jew. You're doing the best thing a Jew could do. Mike, thanks so much. Wonderful. My joy. That's Dr. Michael Brown, AskDrBrown.org. Go to his website, AskDrBrown.org. I'm Frank Turk. Don't forget, I'm in Illinois Sunday, Fort Wayne, Indiana on Monday and Tuesday, and Ohio State on Wednesday. Hope to see you there. God bless. If you benefit from this podcast, help others find it. Just go to iTunes or any other podcast service you might be using to listen and leave us a five-star rating on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast with Dr. Frank Turek. It will take you less than five seconds. You can also help a lot by leaving us a positive review for others to see. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many other audio content delivery apps. Thank you and God bless.